This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pub W-K-L-Y radio. Today, we'll be talking with best-selling young adult author Rick Yancey about his new novel, The Fifth Wave. Then our very own Rose Fox will tell us what's cooking in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Now, last week, um, we had made our little predictions, and I said mine was easy because Dan Brown's Inferno was coming out this week. Well... Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us about that. Uh, Dan Brown's Inferno sold 367,545 copies in one week. That is amazing. That is 13 times more than the number two title. Uh, That is is an extraordinary. um, We added up all of the the sales on the top 50, the the 50 hardcover fiction sales, and he had more than half of them. So out of all the, the 50 most best-selling books in the United States in hardcover fiction nice. this week, more than one out of every two of those was a copy of Dan Brown's Inferno. And like number two is Inferno in Spanish. It's, it, he's, he's just an extraordinary phenomenon. This is astounding. Yeah. And that's, that's an amazing number. So can you tell us about it? Or? Yeah, it's, um, it's based on uh, The Divine Comedy by Dante. So uh, many people have heard of Dante's Inferno. Right. He did a, a Q&A on Amazon. Amazon has, is like capitalizing on this any way they can. They have a Q&A. They have a little mm. tour of Florence really? yeah, on, on their page. If you go to the page yeah. for the book, it's just full of all of this additional right. material. And he did this quick Q&A, um, and he says, The Divine Comedy is one of those rare artistic achievements that transcends its moment in history and becomes an enduring cultural touchstone. Now, if I, I assume you've read The Divine Comedy at some, yes, some point. Yeah. What makes that interesting is that it's so much a book of its time. It's mm-hmm. very political. If you go through it, he's just Dante is basically name-checking everyone he ever wanted to see in hell and, and talking about how terribly tortured they are in the afterlife. <laughs> it's very political. It's, it's very, very of its moment. But the writing is so extraordinary that people can now go through and have no idea who any of these people are or why it matters that their feet are on fire mm-hmm. and to sort of absorb the, the fantastical yeah. elements of it. In, in some ways, what was at the time based on reality, all these real people, has become fantastical which is an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. So Dan Brown has based this latest book on the Inferno. So that, uh, he did three years of research, you know, just trying to uh, reading several translations of the divine comedy, um, various annotations, historical texts, and a lot of background reading on Florence itself. And also he said uh, he was poring over a lot of new scientific information on a cutting edge technology that he had decided to incorporate into the novel. So this is what he does. He takes these very old elements and then the sort of futuristic thriller elements and merges them together in his magical Dan Brown way. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he said it took three years from conception to publication. As always, over the course of writing the book, he was drawn in unexpected directions that required additional research. 
And he said, with respect to the process, the success of these novels has been a bit of a catch-22. On the one hand, I now have wonderful access to specialists, authorities, and even secret archives from which to draw information and inspiration. On the other hand, because there is increased speculation about my works in progress, I need to be very discreet about the places I go Mm. and the specialists with whom I speak. Uh, but he says it's always really important for him to personally visit the locations that he's writing about. Uh, there's just no substitute for being there in the flesh. Yeah, sure. I, I'm just amazed that with each book, he just tends to seems to break his record from the previous one, and this is his yeah. third one. It's yeah. I mean, they, they, really what, did, what did we say? First printing of four million copies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. He's just not not quite like anyone else at no, the moment. No, this is true. This is true. So what else do we have on the list? Anything of note? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's all just sort of eclipsed by sure. Inferno. Um, Walter Mosley's Little Green uh, uh-huh. came out at number 20. Uh, yeah. and Feist's Magician's End is at number 21 on the hardcover fiction list, and that is the 30th and final book in a series, uh, an epic fantasy series, that mm-hmm. um, you, you can kind of hear the dice rolling in the first one. It pretty clearly sure. started out as him and his friends playing a role-playing game. Right. And uh, and then he expanded it in some really interesting directions, actually. Uh, but according to uh, our our reviewer, the review is not live on PW's mm. site yet because we got the book very late. Right. Um, but my my sense of the book is that uh, it's a little bit disappointing, and right. you know, fans would probably rather go back and reread the early books than than read this one. Uh, one of my partners is uh, a big Ray Feist fan and actually introduced me to the series. And when I said, look, we got in the last one, he picked it up, flipped to the end, said, does he die? All right, now I know. And mm. close the book and that was, it. that was all he cared about. Yeah. Does the main character live to the end? And of course, I won't answer that question because I wouldn't <laughs> want to spoil it for anyone sure, who still does sure. want to pick up the yeah. book. What's on nonfiction? Well, let's see. You know, some of the biggest books on war, if you're going to get a best-selling book on war, you're going to talk about two wars, and that's basically World War II and the Civil War. Right. It seems World War One, although there's been some great books written on that. It's kind of a forgotten war, as is the Revolutionary War. And uh, if you look at the two uh, in the uh, uh, late 50s, early 60s, Vietnam and Korea, Vietnam always overshadows uh, Korea. And this one we have uh, Rick Atkinson uh, from Holt is coming out with uh, his uh, volume three of this trilogy, The Guns at Last Light, The War in Western Europe, 1944 to 1945. In our review, we say adding to the trunkful of extended World War II histories, as I just mentioned, by the likes of Sir Max Hastings, Andrew Roberts, Martin Gilbert, John Keegan, and Norman Davies, Atkinson, winner of two Pulitzers for an Army at Dawn and the first of the Liberation Trilogy in his reporting, concludes his series on the war in Europe and North Africa with this superb work. Um, We say his lively, occasionally lyric prose brings the vast theater of battle from the beaches of Normandy deep into Germany brilliantly alive. And by reading uh, reviewer reviews, our own review, uh, he really does. This is something in, 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 uh, in this book that he really goes to the personal. He really brings it alive on a very personal level through the soldier's viewpoint. Uh, and that's number two on our nonfiction list. Now, uh, Looking just a little bit at another, we're going to another war uh, history. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Gettysburg: The Last Invasion by Alan Gweltso. Uh He's a professor at uh, Gettysburg University. This comes at number eighteen. This is Gettysburg: The Last Invasion, and just when you think that there couldn't be yet another book written about Gettysburg, uh, this one has come out, 
And he really, again, looks at the soldiers. I mean, you, you, you get the feeling that as a professor at Gettysburg, he's got access to uh, the battlefield. And, sure. and I, just, I just picture him spending time just ruminating and like envisioning soldiers and looking at the battlefield almost on a daily basis. And according to so many readers' reviews, uh, he, really, uh, he really nails it in this one. And that comes at number uh, 18. At number 10, we have a... Uh, a diet book, uh, My Beef with Meat, The healthy, Healthiest Argument for Eating a Plant-Strong Diet Plus 140 New Engine 2 Recipes. Now, this is by uh, Rip Esselstein, and he's the best-selling author of The Engine 2 Diet. And in this, uh, we're talking about The Engine 2. I think of your fire engine out there. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, but, but he does really make a, uh, a strong case to really base your diet on vegetables rather than, than protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this lands at number 10. And at number 14, we have uh, the book by Jimmy Connors, The Outsider, a memoir. I remember as a, uh, a little, uh, as a, I guess a young teen, uh, where I grew up in Florida, uh, stepping out, uh, riding my bike around tennis courts. There's a big tennis camp there, and it was mm-hmm. in the uh, dewy evening, uh, just before um, just before dusk. And I see a, a group of people gathered around a tennis court, and I get closer, and I see that it's uh, Jimmy Connors playing a grudge match against Beyond Borg, and it's <laughs> like for there for ten, eight people watching and in this is book you know he's the, uh, wow. the original bad boy of tennis uh before McEnroe. uh jimmy connors talks about you know his 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 you know his uh his life uh, as a tennis pro i mean he he kind of with the 1970s kind of defined this this aggressive style of play and he talks about his various his his, his romance to uh uh, Chris Everett, uh, another tennis legend, mm-hmm. and his battles with gambling and infidelity. And um, tell us it all here in this book. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rick Yancey will reveal the secrets of the fifth wave, his new science fiction novel for teens. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Rick Yancey on the line. He's the author of a number of books for young adults, including the Monstromologist series, and he just hit PW's bestseller list with his new novel, The Fifth Wave. Thanks for joining us, Rick. Oh, it's my pleasure. So can you give us a little bit of a summary of The Fifth Wave for those of our listeners who haven't picked it up already? Uh, The Fifth Wave is a story of an alien invasion that starts from the premise that they aren't the kind of aliens that, uh, that we would like to attack us. Uh, the kind of aliens imagined mostly in, in pop culture of um, ones that are somehow thousands of years more advanced than we are, but we're somehow able to defeat them. Right. Uh, the fifth wave imagines a world in which um, some very uncooperative aliens uh, decide that uh, human beings need to go. And the fifth wave is a bit of a departure from the horror novels of the Monstrumologist series. And how, how did this change come about? Oh, I'd wanted to, you know, write something uh, more science fiction than horror, and I've been wanting to for, for quite some time. And as I was finishing up the Monstrumologist series, I thought maybe the time was, you know, ripe to try my, try my hand at it. I've always been kind of a science fiction geek anyway. Mm, uh-huh. So I knew at some point I would be, you know, doing something along you know, more of a science fiction flavor. And The Fifth Wave was just a kind of a confluence of, of different influences that were um, 
had started back a few years ago and just kind of all met together. And uh, the real, the real, the real key for for me was is I ran across a interview with Stephen Hawking, the physicist. Mm-hmm. Uh, the interview had asked him, you know, "Do you do you think we're alone in the universe?" And he said, "Well, we probably aren't." And the interviewer said, "Well, do you think you know? Could they ever visit us?" And he said, "Well, it's certainly possible, but I hope it never happens." Uh, because all you have to do is look at human history. When a when an advanced civilization meets a more primitive one, it's 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 usually not too good for the primitive uh, civilization. Mm-hmm. And that really kind of got the the wheel spinning. Because let's face it, alien invasions have been done a lot. But when I read that interview, I thought, yeah, let's let's try a story where uh, it's not the kind of aliens we would like to attack us, but imagining a civilization far in advance of ours needing our planet and, and how exactly would they would they go about in, in taking it from us so this sounds almost like like you're thinking about colonialism like the invasions that human beings have perpetrated on one another throughout history but with a a, a bit of an extraterrestrial bent yeah there's kind of i guess in, in very general terms it's like that i mean i conceive it first as a as a thriller uh, the invasion is a backdrop to how, you know, I, I tell, you know, especially young readers, you know, it, it's not a story so much about aliens, it's a story about humans, right. and how we react to catastrophe, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ultimately, you know, once everything has been stripped away, uh, not only our technology and, and, and the basics that we need to survive, um, you know, what is left, what finally makes us human. And that's the underlying questions that, that run through the book. Um, always keeping in mind that, uh, you know, I, I, I was writing a thriller, uh, a page turner. Right. right. And you'll, you'll, uh, you'll hear in the background there, uh, Rick, the uh, uh, sirens. And we are, we are recording from the PW uh, studio here. Uh, we're on 23rd Street, so it's a pretty busy street. So you have to forgive us for that. But we promise it's not I, I an alien invasion. I <laughs> right, right. Now, 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 the novel uh, follows Cassie, uh, who is on a lonely stretch of highway, and she encounters someone named Evan Walker. And and can you tell us about these two characters, how they came about, and, and what exactly are they doing? Cassie, actually, um, I had always wanted to write something from the point of view of, of a female. Of course, I've, I've never been one, so it was kind of a challenge for me. <laughs> And to, most of the story is told through her eyes. There are multiple perspectives to, uh, and points of view throughout throughout the book because it was such a, I felt it was such a large sort of epic story that uh, I didn't want to confine it just to one particular character's point of view. But Kathy, Kathy does sort of carry the story along. We see most of the, uh, uh, the attacks through her eyes, narrated through her voice. And uh, one of the early images I had of the book was uh, a, a young girl who was wounded and she was trapped. She was hiding, and whatever this thing was that was after her was still out there. And she finds herself in an impossible situation: stay where she is and hide, and, and slowly bleed to death from her injuries, or get up and try to escape, to run. But she knows if she does that, she will probably be finished off by this being that's chasing her. And it was that very early image of her terrified and hiding um, that uh, really gripped me and, and excited me, you know, as a, as, a, as a writer. She does eventually, you know, she faces that situation, she, she, and she does manage to survive, mm-hmm. and then she does meet Evan, 
who actually rescues her after that. And, you know, part of the story of the book is about human connection. Cassie has realized that these aliens or others, as she calls them, can put on a human face somehow. And she has come to con- kind of terrifying conclusion that in order to stay alive in this new world, you can trust absolutely no one. But here is someone who, you know, has, has rescued her and is taking care of her and, and nursing her back to health. And she's, you know, you know she's, the, the new rule she's made up for survival is, is put to the, to the ultimate test of, of having to trust him. The thrust of the story is Cassie's quest. She loses her little brother in, in the course of these attacks to eradicate humanity. And uh, her one goal in the book is to, is to find her little brother and make him safe. And you know, that's what drives the book forward. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Rick Yancey about his new young adult science fiction novel, The Fifth Wave. So Cassie seems like an interesting character. On the one hand, she's rescued by Evan, and on the other hand, she has this determination to be a rescuer herself, to go out and save her little brother. How does she deal with those sort of do com- competing narratives? Uh, well, it's very difficult. Um, it, it is, you know... She comes to the realization, as does uh, the other major narrator of the book, which is, is not Evan, but uh, another character, that ultimately what will bring humanity hope or what's left for humanity is, is the basics of, of keeping our promises to each other and our promises to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, the other character, this uh, is sort of an, 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 a flip side of, of Cassie's dilemma in that at a critical moment he actually abandoned his sibling, his little sister, and he lives with that guilt as, as you know, not only the guilt of abandoning her, but being, you know, the, the survivor's guilt that everyone in his family has, has died and, and, and he alone is a survivor. And their stories sort of parallel each other and eventually they all kind of, it's like minor tributaries all leading to a great river at the end when um, uh, her story and his story sort of collide. And how old are your characters? How old is Cassie? Cassie is 16. Right. Uh, the character that I was speaking of, Zombie, he is uh, 17. Um, oh, what a great... He's a little so, bit older. So, oh, okay, right. So Zombie is the name of the character, the other narrator of the book. Yes. Got it. So you know, this is the, the first of a trilogy. And how did you know that this would become a trilogy? Or, or did you set out to write a trilogy? I knew from, from the initial you know, conceptualization of the book and, and coming up with the basic outlines of the story that it would be extremely difficult to achieve what I wanted to achieve to do it in a, in a single book, mm-hmm. or at least a single book that's under 500 pages. Right. So, yeah, I, I originally conceived it as, as at least needing three books to, you know, to tell in its entirety. I mean, this this one, I think the back of the book says here, 480 pages. So just that first volume is already pushing the limit, I think, of what people yes. tend, to, <laughs> tend to expect from a young adult novel. Yes, exactly. I, you know, the whole young adult handle or, you know, categorization of it, I, you know, I try to put that kind of stuff out of my mind. Yes, they're young protagonists, but I just try to tell a great story that's entertaining. And mm-hmm. I don't ever consciously, you know, quote-unquote, write down to an audience. I, I, out of 13 books, all of them have been in, in, in the first person. I don't know where that really comes from, but mm. I guess it's, uh, I have a, some background and training in the theater, and it's almost like as a writer I'm slipping into different roles. And oh, wow. uh, I don't concentrate so much on, you know, world-building except just showing a world through a particular character's eyes. And that's what, one of the fun things about writing this book was, 
even though at times it's a very dark topic. You know, you're talking about literally the end of the world. <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, part of the, you know, the, the challenge and the fun of it me as an author was, you know, um, taking these incidents and events and actually seeing them through the eyes of very different people and how they react and their perceptions to it and how that affects, you know, them in, 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 in different ways. There are moments of, you know, uh, there's very funny parts of the book. There's, you know, moments of great hope and, and affirmation. And there's, always, there's also some very, you know, dark moments. Um, right. uh, this is, you know, when the characters go through, you know, as you would in any sort of situation like this, senses of hopelessness and what's the point of going on. And each character has to figure out, you know, uh, Evan, the character we were talking about earlier, you know, says, you know, I used to think that it was about um, to, to hang on. You had to, to, to find that thing that's worth living for. But then I realized uh, to hang on, you, you, you have to find that thing worth dying for. Mm. And, um, and each character has that particular thing. Well, and you say you don't, you know, write down or talk down to the characters or, or to the audience. Yet you are writing about kids who are 16 for uh, a grade level that's, you know, 7th, 8th, ninth graders. How, how right. do you manage to do that and to approach a subject as, you know, potentially dark and, and deep as this? Well, I think it's just it's a matter of authenticity. Finding, you know, finding that authentic voice for um, – uh, whichever particular character is narrating at that moment. That's what I really strive for. I try to focus on, um, obviously, you know, you're going to have to have some control over your material, but mm-hmm. um, struggling for that authentic-sounding voice. You know, do I think that 100% of the time I was able to, you know, pull off a 16-year-old sophomore's voice? You know, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I do know that it seemed very authentic to me, and it, and it and, and, and that's what I... That's what I shot for. And when you were doing an interview with uh, PW's Children's Bookshelf, you talked about how much you like touring. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I mean, you're talking to us from a hotel room right now. What's like? Hotel rooms aren't that great. I think what I was talking about was uh, speaking to uh, students. Right. Um, on this tour, I've spoken to probably close to a thousand now, and. Um, it's just so exciting being in a, in a room with kids, and, and, and these aren't just kids, you know, that are in advanced classes or, or readers or do some special thing in order to attend. It's just that, you know, students from the general population of, of, of whatever school it is, whether it's a school in, in the suburbs or a, uh, a rural school or a, you know, a school from uh, the, the city, an urban school. I mean, uh, it's, it's incredibly exciting to – I never go in with a canned speech – uh, I always just, you know, try to find that that common ground and, or interaction point that I can have with uh, with the students, and it's it's just incredibly energizing because it's not so much about reading or books with them; it's just about stories. It's just about you know stories that they can relate to, or, or they have some you know common point with me about that we can you know mm-hmm. actually more like a dialogue, mm-hmm. and that's the thing I I love most about about touring. I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Rick Yancey, who's on tour right now to promote his new book, The Fifth Wave. Uh, you're going back a little bit. Your first two series, uh, the Highly Effective Detective series and the Alfred Crop book, they were written at more or less the same time. You were kind of alternating books there for a while. What was it like shifting gears between them? Well, I, it, there's a strange connection between those two series, and uh, I'll tell it briefly. I had I had written the, the first highly effective detective book first, and actually Teddy Ruzak, mm-hmm. the, the 
protagonist of that series had an adventure in which his first case was finding the sword Excalibur. <laughs> and um, publishers loved it, uh, but they just couldn't see publishing it because they, they thought they had a marketing dilemma. I had mixed up, you know, classic detective mystery with uh, fantasy elements, King Arthur's sword, right. along with certain spy elements, like the CIA gets involved in the story, and um, I just couldn't find a publisher for it. Uh, my agent suggested that I take Teddy's character, uh, change him, make him 15 years old, and he thought the book could be uh, sold as a young adult novel. So I kind of accidentally got into the whole Alfred thing and young adult because I love the story a lot, and I, I, I did finally do that um, and wrote it, changed Teddy to Alfred, made him 15, and, and that became the Alfred Crop series. But I loved the character Teddy so much that I just wrote a whole new book for him under the highly effective detective um, title. Oh, I see. So they're, they're sort of stuff. flip sides of the same coin. Yes, exactly. I mean, there's, 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 if people have read the highly effective detective books and the Alfred books, there's a lot of similarities between Alfred and Teddy's character, and that's that's basically why. If, if Alfred grew up in a, you know, would, if he was able to grow up, he'd, he'd probably be someone very much like Teddy. All right. And uh, your your first book was a novel, and it was called a, you know, a, an adult novel, Burning in Homeland, about a small yeah. town. Tell us about the inspiration for that. I mean, obviously, uh, it sounds like the uh, the, the uh, highly effective series. What you were uh, writing an adult novel, but then changed it to a uh, young adult. But what was the inspiration for this first novel? That novel was uh, oh gosh, like twenty five years in the making. I had um, <laughs> wow. it actually began as a short story for a. Um, advanced creative writing seminar that I had in college. Basically, uh, if you've ever, I mean, the, the tone of it is very um, deep south, very much Faulkner-like, and it eventually became a screenplay back in the 90s. And then um, my wife read the screenplay, and she said, "I think this would make a really good novel." And uh, so eventually, I sat down and and developed the screenplay I had written into a, a novel. So that's oh. how that evolved. Wow, a little bit reverse from uh, going from novel to screenplay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I did it backwards. Well, I was trying to break into screenwriting from Knoxville, Tennessee, and it's just it's not going to... Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> right. Pick yourself up for something. <laughs> so now, you you once worked for the IRS, and for several years, it seems, and, and you wrote about it in your follow-up novel, Confessions of a Tax Collector. And it seems that the IRS can be its its own world. I mean, is it more like horror or science fiction for you? <laughs> <laughs> it's more absurdist. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's more like a pension novel or something. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, I had... Um, I published Burning in Homeland, and, and uh, I was, you know, trying to come up with, you know, my, my next my next book. And I happened to read a book by John Gregory Dunn named Monster, which is this uh, a nonfiction account of his uh, some of his adventures in, in in the movie business. And that kind of you know that kind of gave me the idea. You know, no one's ever written a book about you know the inner workings of of the IRS. <laughs> right. And uh, you know, I and it didn't occur to you there might be a, a reason <laughs> for that. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> I keep expecting to get a subpoena on this latest stuff that's going on. I keep waiting for that. Maybe oh, right, find sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's kind of where that, that, uh, that whole project came out of. 
Great. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and we've been talking with author Rick Yancey about his newest novel, The Fifth Wave, which is the beginning of a trilogy. So your publisher's been promoting the book with a variety of book trailers, each aimed at different audiences. I mean, do you think that that's been an effective strategy? Well, all I can do is, you know, I can, I can look at uh, the hits on YouTube. And right. Yeah, right, right, I, right. I, I usually show them uh, when I do the school presentations. And the the kids themselves, you know, react strongly to to the videos. They they're you know they're really uh, they're really impressed. They're very dramatic, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and very high production values. And right. they kind of tell a story themselves and, and kind of set up or do what a book teaser should do. They tease you. They they give you kind of a little taste, and then they're kind of evocative, and they don't right. you know they don't put it in your face, but you know they they raise enough questions where you may be curious um, about the book. Have any of these kids in your talks uh, talked about these uh, trailers? Oh yes. They, yeah. Okay. They ask a million <laughs> questions about them. They critique them. They, you know, they, they, they. It really gets a conversation going about um, uh, about my concept of of how an alien invasion might might proceed. Mm, Not sure. the, the way we usually like to show it, or we would like aliens to attack us, but you know, one possible scenario of of, of how it might actually happen. Well, we've been talking with Rick Yancey, and you can find his best-selling new young adult science fiction novel, The Fifth Wave, in stores right now. Rick, thank you so much for joining us. What's well, my pleasure, Mark and Rose. Thank you very much. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Rose will continue the extraterrestrial theme with a look at some recent hot science fiction and fantasy. So stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. So every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today our guest editor is none other than our very own Rose Fox, who, among many other things, handles the science fiction, fantasy, and horror reviews for PW. Rose, what's hot in genre fiction for summer. Well, I'm actually going to go back a little bit to the to the winter. I want to talk oh, about sure. some books yeah, that yeah, are yeah. out now Let's and then that. some books that are coming out. Okay. Uh, I just started reading Blood Oranges by Kathleen Tierney. This is a pseudonym for Caitlin R. Kiernan. She's been known for many, many years now as a really extraordinary, interesting writer of dark fantasy. Uh, some people call it horror. She doesn't like that. Don't do that to her face. She, she does a lot of interesting things with the supernatural. This is her fascinating deconstruction of the urban fantasy genre. So right up front, we have this incredibly foul-mouthed mm-hmm. uh, narrator who, who says, you know, I'm not Buffy, and if you think that this is Buffy, then you're wrong. And yeah, <laughs> there will be various ways. Where if, if this had been a television show, then I would have killed the monster and said something pithy. But of course, that's not how it worked. Um, and she's a junkie. She's uh, homeless. She's queer. She is not your typical urban fantasy heroine. And uh, she's out there hunting monsters when she stops to shoot up heroin, at which point a werewolf bites her in the ass. No. (laughs) (laughs) And she's rescued by a vampire who then bites her, too. So here she is. She's supposed to be a monster hunter, but now she's turning into two monsters at once. And she has to figure out how to deal with this while working her connections on the street and dealing with the various traumas of her unhappy life and still on heroin and still on heroin though uh, i pretty much the first scene is the vampire taunting her by holding her fix away while she goes through withdrawal i mean this, this is a hardcore book wow this is I, this, this is not light 
this doesn't seem like, especially with the heroin as a, a heroin addict or heroin user as a main character. I, mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen this so much in even in genre fiction. No, I, not not very much. I mean, certainly there was there was plenty of trippy fiction back in the 70s when everybody was doing drugs and right, so of exactly. course people were on drugs writing books about being on drugs this but is true this is a little different now you had mentioned that the author does not like the term horror but prefers it seems dark fantasy what, mm-hmm. is there a difference or is there's that absolutely just, a difference oh, okay t- can you tell us a little bit about that a lot of the difference is about tradition so when you think horror for example you're going to think stephen king you're going to mm-hmm. think clive barker ramsey campbell um it's a very male tradition it's a tradition that's a lot about blood and gore it's about spooky scary startling um, the things that jump out and go boo that's a tradition that i think she doesn't necessarily want to be a part of obviously i cannot speak for kiernan it, she has her own opinions on this and has made them clear very many times. So you mm-hmm. should go hunt down her, her blog and um, her writing on the topic. But when you think about dark fantasy, that's much more partaking of the fantasy tradition, just of the sort of dark underbelly of it. The, you know, Going back, for example, a few hundred years, when the Brothers Grimm were wandering around, they sanitized a lot of the tales that they collected. But mm-hmm. some of that stuff is really creepy. I mean, you know, the witch was going to eat Hansel and Gretel. Let's, right. let's not let's right. not pretend otherwise. Right. Like that that is right. a creepy, creepy story. And at the end, they shove her in the oven. You right. know, so it's it's partaking of that kind of dark folkloric tradition and saying this is our our whole collective unconscious here. This is the stuff that people are really deep down scared of. But it's not horror in the sense of really playing on your fears and trying to evoke those particular raw emotions it's more looking at the fantastic through a lens of you know, sometimes kind of gritty hyper realism right. um, and and you know which is some of what's going on in blood oranges which is just you know about there there are people who live these lives and they don't show up in books very much right and for a lot of the the folks out there who are like this narrator who are homeless who are drug users uh, who are outside of mainstream society for whatever reason what we think of as dark is just normal to them right and you had mentioned werewolves and vampires in Mm -hmm. this and it seems that in in my mind uh or at least in more recent novels or even tv shows that these take place in rural areas and this one you said is an urban it's urban um it's mostly around uh, providence rhode island Mm. which is i mean it's not the world's biggest city so it's not the most urban urban fantasy Uh, but werewolves and vampires show up a lot in in urban fantasy these days that's that's pretty common uh, what's interesting here is that there is no way that they are sex objects. Um, a lot of urban fantasy, there's like the very sexy alpha werewolf and right. and the the sort of glamorous vampire, and, and you, know, you have like the metrosexual vampire and the right. the, the super right. alpha werewolf. Right. And um, <laughs> and here the werewolves are monsters. Like they are three hundred pound slavering dogs. They're, there's nothing remotely sexy about them. And the vampires are super creepy. Really? So um, wow. it's uh, definitely an unusual twist. So this That's is out great. right now. It came out in February. Well worth checking out. And there's right. going to be a, a whole 
series spun off of it. So it's it's basically just taking everything about the urban fantasy genre that's fantasy in the sense of sort of spinning daydreams in the sense of, oh, well, what if vampires were really kind of sexy and nice? Um, right. And saying, no, you're wrong. Right, right, right. exactly. <laughs> vampires yeah. are not sexy and right. nice. Werewolves are not sexy and nice. Being a monster hunter is incredibly dangerous and traumatic and difficult. And this is what it's really like. I'm going to show you how it is. And, and a bit different from the uh, Sicky Stackhouse books Very. Uh, that so many people are familiar with. Mm-hmm. So it looks like that was a starred review. Yeah, it got a, a starred review. All the books that I wanted to talk about today are uh, actually books that got starred reviews from Publishers Weekly. I'm Mark Rotella and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. My co-host Rose Fox is telling us about genre fiction which has just come out and uh, maybe a peek at what we'll be uh, seeing in the summer. That's right. So what do you have now? All of the books that I'm bringing up are real genre benders. It was interesting we were just talking with Rick Yancey about how he had real trouble at first um, you know maybe 10 years ago selling a book that was part detective novel and part fantasy and part spy story. And last week when we were talking with Charlene Harris, she said the same thing, that when she started writing the Suki Stackhouse vampire mysteries, people were like, we don't know what to call it. Is it vampire? Is it mystery? And now uh, genre bending is everywhere. Genre blurring is everywhere. And it's really interesting to see what people are are doing with that. And the the queen of the genre benders is Kit Reed. Mm-hmm. She's been doing this for a very, very long time. She says uh, she just writes stories and sees what happens. Um, and whatever genre they end up being in, that's the genre they're in. And so uh, a whole bunch of her stories have been collected in The Story Until Now, mm-hmm. which came out from Wesleyan University Press in March. Even though it's a university press, it should be pretty easy to find. It's a gorgeous book, a really hefty hardcover. It's got 34 short stories, and they vary so widely. Uh, you know, our, our reviewer said there's claustrophobic generational paranoia, there's absurdist humor, melancholy survivor's guilt, and smirkingly betrayed revolutionary ideals. Oh, wow. So a real yeah. broad range. And, and most of them are sort of fantastical in some way or another, and others... Well, there's nothing you could put your finger on that like this is not in our world. They just have that that aura of the not quite real, mm-hmm. and they're they're just they're just terrific. Wow, fantastic! Terrific and you said this is a uh, coming up by Wesleyan University Press, and mm-hmm. university presses, unless I'm mistaken, aren't really known for genre fiction. Wesleyan's the exception. Really, they do uh, actually quite a lot of genre fiction. I, ah. I get a few books from them every year. I mean, not a lot, a lot, not like dozens. But sure. They have quite an interest in genre fiction yeah. titles. And they publish some very, very good authors, mostly women, hmm. mostly people who are pushing the envelope in some ways. So Kit Reed is a perfect fit for them. Oh, wonderful. Fantastic. So that's the story until now. I, you know, I love short fiction. We talk about this all the time. But there are just so many great collections coming out. Another one that's actually just out is by Yunha Lee. It's called Conservation of Shadows. Mm. And this is Lee's first collection uh, a science fiction collection, hard science fiction. Lee is a mathematician, but also plenty of, of fantastical elements in there, drawing on Korean mythology, which is what Lee grew up with, and uh, also a lot of contemporary sources uh, from the fantasy that's being published now to uh, anime shows from Japan, mm. uh, a whole whole broad range. Right. And some really interesting writing in there uh, about 
revenge and uh, uh, you know, deep, powerful emotions, what motivates people. And Lee is one of those people you will only have heard of uh, if you're really kind of deeply wired into the science fiction and fantasy scene. Uh, the book is coming out from Prime, which is a small press, mm-hmm. a small genre press. And I really wish there were some way to get this a bigger audience because... You know, Yunha Lee has not written any novels, uh, just just short fiction, right. the first collection. And uh, this is just, uh, in, it's just incredible work. Wow. It's incredible work. Well, it's good that we're mentioning it then uh, on the show I'm now. I'm doing my yeah, best. Right. And so, you know, we, we have been talking about short stories, short fiction. And at one time, it seemed that publishers wouldn't publish short stories. It seemed to be taboo or the kiss of death. But we've been seeing it again and again. And you and me and our editors here have been getting excited about it. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I, I think, again, most of these are coming out from small presses, like the Kit Reed collection sure. is from Wesleyan University. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Yoon Ha Lee collection is from Prime. And right. a lot of the collections in even the anthologies that I see, the anthologies tend to get a bit more play. And for those you know, not familiar with these subtle distinctions, a, a collection means it's just by one author, mm-hmm. whereas an anthology is stories from a whole bunch of different authors that have been brought together and curated, as they right. say these days, right. by, by an editor. And I feel like really small presses are the ones that take chances on these because they don't sell all that well. But for a small press, selling a thousand copies is a big deal. Whereas right. for, say, Random House, a thousand copies is, well, let's drop that author and find somebody who will sell 10,000 right. or 100,000. Yeah. yeah, sure. So it's really, you know, the small presses are the ones that can afford to take chances on this. But it's so wonderful that they do. A lot of authors, I think, see short fiction as kind of a playground it's a place where they can experiment you're not investing years of your life the way you are in a novel i mean in theory there are probably some short (laughs) stories out there that have taken years off of somebody's life but for the most part you you can you can write a short story in a shorter amount of time you're not doing massive amounts of research and so you can you can be very experimental. You can be very playful. You can try new ideas. You can try new concepts. And you can see, uh, like Rick Yancey was telling us about a short story that ended up being a screenplay and right. then a novel. And then a novel right. But you know, you you start out with that small piece, and you it's kind of your your proving ground, um, like going out on a date before you get married. Uh, right, exactly. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. My co-host, Rose Fox, is talking to us about genre fiction. We've been talking about a collection of short stories, actually two collections. And what do we have next? Well, I wanted to uh, bring up a couple of imports. This is always interesting, seeing what comes to the United States from overseas. There's some very interesting stuff happening in science fiction in England right now, though uh, there's a a real scandal at the moment, um, which is that... I believe there are currently no women under contract to write science fiction in the UK. It's a real problem. Really? The Clark Award shortlist just went, it was five books by men. It's been a problem. With that caveat, I will say that a lot of great stuff is being done in the UK, but also there are a lot of great female science fiction authors in the UK who are not getting published right now and should be. So hopefully right. that will that will change very soon. Wow. But one of the uh, the big names in British science fiction is Adam Roberts. He's a critic as well as an author. Mm-hmm. Um, he writes standalone novels. He doesn't do series. He'll, he will take an idea and he'll turn it into a novel and then he'll move on to the next thing. And his most recent book is Jack Glass, The Story of a Murderer. And this is another one of those genre benders. It's actually a murder mystery or it's three murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, it's a, it's a three-part novel. And 
Roberts actually did a great Q&A with us where he talked about what he was trying to do with this book. He says, I sat down to plan out the whodunit element to think about the form it could take. Now, the default mode of the whodunit is a murder, a dozen or so suspects, mm -hmm. and the least likely is revealed to be the murderer. But that's a bit vanilla. So I thought about the games that crime writers have played with that template in Murder on the Orient Express, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, Police at the Funeral. And after cogitating, I could only think of two permutations that no one had done. One is a whodunit in which the reader turns out to be the murderer. I'm working mm. out how to write that. <laughs> and two is the conceit that informs Jack Glass. It's not a spoiler to say this since I declare it on the first page. I wanted to write a novel in which the identity of the murderer is revealed at the beginning such that the crime is committed and investigated, and then the identity is revealed at the end and is still a surprise. And I decided it would be fun to do that three times, <laughs> one after the other. So and Jack Glass, successful? and he was very successful. Yeah. We, yeah. we gave it a starred review, a rave yeah. review. Jack Glass is the murderer. Mm. You know that. You know that going in. It says right on the front, Jack Glass, the story of a murderer. He is the killer. We know who done it from the very first page. We know it even before the first page. Mm. You know it from picking up the book. And yet somehow as you go through, you still get the who done it rhythm and that sense of investigation and curiosity that keeps pulling the reader through the book. This notion of the unreliable narrator is one of my, my favorite things to play around with. The idea that the reader doesn't even know whether they can trust the person who's telling them the story. Mm -hmm. And that adds so many layers of, of intrigue. You're not just trying to figure out what they're going to tell you, but you're trying to figure out whether to believe it. And actually, the Blood Oranges, the book I was talking about before, the urban fantasy novel, she tells you the story of how she became a monster hunter because this monster came out of nowhere and killed her girlfriend. And so she snatched a burning board out of their little illegal fire and beat it to death. Mm. And about mm. 10 pages later, she says, oh, that story I told you, I was lying. Junkies do that. <laughs> we lie all the time. Actually, uh, it tripped and fell face first into the illegal fire and burnt itself to death. And I had nothing to do with it. I mostly screamed. Well, I, I love this idea. His first idea where the uh, the reader is, in fact, the murderer. Right. And, I wish I could figure I, out know, how you do that. Well, you know, with, with the way perhaps ebooks are developing right now, <laughs> there might be a way where uh, uh, you do become the murderer in some cases. I, I can only picture that being sort of a, a, a choose-your-own-adventure exactly, novel, right, maybe, sure, where, sure. where it turns out that you were the killer all along. But I, I think it's, it's fascinating yeah. to contemplate these things and to take this very technical yeah. approach to... Certainly a, a tried and true established concept like the whodunit mm -hmm. novel and say, how can I undermine this? Right. How can I play right. around with this? What has nobody done before? Yeah. Yeah. And, and this kind of goes uh, against the notion, that stereotypical notion that genre fiction, I, I think for the lay reader, is, is formulaic. I mean, here he's kind of breaking down all kinds of formulas and creating his own. Absolutely. And that's true of all of the books that I wanted to yeah. discuss today. I wanted to show a little bit about how genre fiction is kind of changing things up and trying new things because that's how a genre stays alive. Mm. You can't just keep going. Yeah. I mean, there, there are any number of books I could have talked about that yeah. are, that are the same old thing, or I could have talked about all these, these big fantasy series that are ending, like you know, the Robert Jordan series just ended Ray Feist 30 book series just ended. And, um, and, and that's fine as far as it goes, but I feel like these authors are, are the lifeblood mm -hmm of science fiction and fantasy now. These are the ones who are really keeping it going. Yeah. Now, we, we're talking now uh, about uh, books from, from the UK, mm -hmm. books brought here. And, and uh, for, for many readers, 
you know, for many listeners out there, you'd think that genre fiction, horror, mostly an American and, and maybe a British kind of thing. I, I mean, are there books? Are there other uh, books coming from other countries that Absolutely. have been translated into yep. English? I'm great. glad you oh, asked, because oh, I have good. one of those right here. Oh, good. Um, the last book I wanted to talk about is called The World of the End. It's by Ophir mm -hmm. Touche Gafla, and it's translated from Hebrew. Now, that's not something you expect to see on a no. science fiction novel cover, but the science fiction and fantasy are actually written all over the world. And if we, if we include um, speculative fiction, if we include folklore, uh, sometimes religious fiction or retellings of folk tales, fairy tales, uh, and, and mythology, then it's, it's a global phenomenon. Right, right. Uh, people are always exploring what is real, what might be real, what could be mm. real someday, what right. might have been real once. Uh, we, we have stories from history that, uh, you know, may or may not involve actual deities coming down and sticking their fingers into human business. Um, and this happens everywhere. There's, there's an incredible science fiction tradition in China, for example, that we see nothing of here. It's very, very rare for that mm. to be translated. Um, there's a, uh, an entire small publisher, Haikasuru, which is all about Japanese science fiction, translating it from right. the Japanese and bringing it to the U.S., and also um, American and, and British authors and others writing in English who uh, are, are writing about Japan right. and writing Japanese-influenced science fiction. And um, just this past weekend at the Nebula Awards... Um, Possibly the very first time that one of the the Nebula Awards, which are uh, rewarded awarded by the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America, uh, one went to a an author for whom English is not her first language. Uh, her name is Aliette de Baudard. She's French and Vietnamese. She came in from Paris to accept the award, and she's and and the and her story is um, very much drawn from. Uh, aspects of Vietnamese heritage and mythology. So yeah. it's it really is actually a very diverse field and getting more so every day. So The World of the End, which is this book translated from Hebrew, uh, it actually was published in 2005 mm -hmm. in right. the original language and then uh, was translated into English. Uh, and it won the, the Geffen Award, which uh, is an award for books written in Hebrew. It was very prestigious. Um, and so we say it's part romance, part mystery, and part science fantasy, which means, you know, it's not really hard science. There's, you're not going to find quadratic equations in here. Right. Um, but it's, it's just sort of fantasy with a uh, – think, think lightsabers. Lightsabers are totally science <laughs> fantasy. <laughs> right, right. Um, and uh, so it's about a, a fellow named Ben Mendelssohn. Right. Um, whose job is to write perfect endings. He writes the perfect endings for books and movies. Um, and his, when his wife dies under bizarre aeronautical circumstances, mm. whatever that means, oh, wow. um, he decides that the perfect ending to their romance is to kill himself Wow! in order to be with her in the afterlife. And, um, and so he goes to the other world, the world of the end, mm -hmm. um, which is full of cities of the dead, strange technology, right, and so right. on. And, um, and Ben uh, finds many of his own relatives. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out they all die quite frequently. Um, right. But he can't find his wife. And so with the help of an eccentric detective of the hereafter, he goes on an Orpheus-like quest. 
Uh, so we have a, a, this sort of interconnected puzzle of living people, dead people, uh, and various elements that will shock, amuse, and illuminate the natures of humans and their inevitable end. And I think this is a book that could not have been written in America. Americans are very weird about death mm -hmm. and, and about the notion of the afterlife. And this is a book that comes from an entire other tradition, an entire other part of the world, and an entire other approach right. to death and afterlife. I think that's uh, good stuff. Wow, this, uh, this is really eye-opening for me, for I'm sure for our listeners here. So thank you so much. Oh, well, my, my pleasure. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwkly.radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.